Hey, podcast listener, Fraser here. I'm going to do something a little different today. This is a podcast interview with me, but not from my podcast. This comes from the Science News and Cues podcast from the Carnegie Science Center, and I had a chance to do an interview with them for 45 minutes. So if you want to uh, check that out, I'm just going to play their whole podcast. Uh, there's sort of the introduction to their podcast, and then they get into it at about the 15 minute mark if you want to hear my thoughts about just running universe today and science journalism and how to get into the industry and that kind of thing. So definitely go if you want to check out it's called it's it's SNAQ. If you do a search for that and Carnegie Science Center, you can find the podcast and subscribe. So definitely check it out. I'll put a link in the in the show notes of the podcast. All right, enjoy. Welcome to Science News and Cues. Also known as Snack, a Carnegie Science Center podcast. I'm Chris Isidore. And I'm Ralph Crew. And this is Angelica Miller. Wow, right. who's that? It's another voice. It's another voice. Yep. So uh, we were like, you know, it's better than two voices. Three. And and so we brought on <laughs> Angelica. Angelica, so as as we mentioned in an earlier episode, Carissa is sometimes completely consumed by the planetarium. It's true. The planetarium looks at me and just swallows <laughs> me whole <laughs> and doesn't let me escape for many, many hours on end and sometimes weeks. Uh, but I, yeah, it's it's a fun thing for me. But we also have Angelica here. Angelica, how are you? I am great. Angelica, how are you? can you tell us a little bit about what you do here at the Science Center? Angelica does also work here at the Carnegie Science Center. We didn't just find her on we the street. We didn't just no, grab a random person. I do work here, and I've worked here for a while. Um, <laughs> my current hat that I'm wearing, um, I do early learner programming for our little learner clubhouse here at the Science Center. So Which is a really cool space. If you have kids or are a small child... Um, definitely check it out yes families with children who are six years old and younger are more than welcomed in our space i like that you keep the big kids out they tend to they can i mean everybody yeah. should come to the science center and have fun here but sometimes big kids kind of well the little ones dominate. need their yeah. own they need their own space they need their own room to explore they do the big kids have four floors plus sports works and other fun places to play but our little ones only have half a floor on the fourth floor so we keep it for them yeah i love a lot of stuff that you do you do a lot of really fun fun and new programming and there's always it feels like there's always something different going on up there uh and sometimes we sing which is really fun we do sing music mondays music are fun last monday of monday. every month except for memorial day yeah you know what what i think when we have angelica right here let's talk about some science some science news yeah let's have a snack all right sounds delicious <laughs> So our first story today uh, is, it's kind of, it's a very big deal. Uh, microplastics have been detected in the French Pyrenees mountains uh, in areas that are extremely remote, relatively untouched by humans. So this is uh, a big deal. This is not a place that's being you know, walked through and littered. It's it's a place that's, you know, not really 
visited mm-hmm. by people at all. Uh, now, if you've heard the term of my microplastics, maybe you're not exactly sure what that means. They're they're broken down pieces of of or fibers or films of plastic um, that are broken down over time. And this plastic does not degrade like organic materials do. It stays plastic, uh, and it stays plastic for a really really long time. And that's kind of a big problem, especially when it starts being consumed by animals and things that we end up consuming so there's just plastic everywhere Mm -hmm. uh it's pretty gross there was a paper released last month in nature geoscience it reports that these traces of plastic traveled atmospherically so they caught a ride on the wind and they were distributed far and wide and they could be distributed even further by faster winds which are becoming a thing as our climate is changing (laughs) so it, it you know it this compounding thing is happening and the research also shows that this plastic that was found is mostly made up of particles uh, that are present in plastic bags and single-use packaging so they're able to identify the source of this plastic and which i think is that's really useful to be it is to extremely useful origins. and it, it may not even be telling us something that we didn't already know but it's further confirming these things you know we know that single-use plastics are not a great thing and no. you know this plastic is made to last forever and we only use it once and just toss it so it's kind of a good thing to keep this in mind and and hopefully moving forward we can continue to reduce you know the use of plastics like this right. and it's it's kind of it can be almost disheartening to think that it's in such remote places like this like i expect when i look at like a parking lot in a city we're going to see some debris um, or maybe sometimes in a river, which is kind of a bummer. But the idea that it's on top of mountains. It's on the top of mountains. They found mm-hmm. plastics in the yeah. Marianas Trench, like deep in the ocean where people literally have never been. So It's like our f- fingerprint almost. Like you can imagine exactly. in millions of years if some like alien archaeologists are sifting through the different layers of geology, just like we can tell like the year Ours the dinosaurs be... went extinct. Like when you find the thin layer of plastic. The plastic that's layer. That's the human era. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean... It's kind of a joke, but it's also like literally that's what's going to happen. Yeah. So it's just I mean, it is it, it is hard to talk about. It's hard to think about, but it's important to talk about because it's not like we're powerless and it's not like we can't do anything about it. So it's just something to be aware of and, and keep in your mind as, as you know, we go through our day to day lives. Okay. We ready to talk about something less depressing? Yes, please. Less depressing. <laughs> please. I might. Cu- I might keep that. <laughs> you Don't keep it. Hey, it was, we, That's I own the, the spirit. Oh. So, on a note that is a little more encouraging. Yeah. Uh, but still environmental. Uh, I wanted to. What did I say? Environmental. Weird. No. Environmental. I'm just la- I'm laughing. You, you may have noticed I sound a little funky today, so I'm like having trouble. Am I saying stuff? I no, was I was fine. I'm right. just. <laughs> I was the N in environmental. Environment. I literally environ. said it. it oh, sounded do I talk about an environ? Well, in this particular <laughs> oh environ, so this is actually some good news from coral reefs off of Hawaii. So pretty far away from the Pyrenees. Uh, and scientists there have been studying the uh, effects of things like ocean warming and acidification on corals. This is something that we study all around the world. This is kind of a big problem. A lot of coral bleaching is happening out there, um, which is a thing that happens when corals expel the algae that they keep within their bodies if if the waters get too warm or too acidic, and that can cause serious problems. 
Well, the interesting thing is that these researchers have found what they're calling super corals. Mm. Yes. These corals go out at night and stop crime. <laughs> uh, okay. See, I like that Angelica at least slaps. Okay. Angelica hasn't been doing a podcast with you for two years. She'll learn. Uh, super corals. So um, the, the super corals are actually uh, corals that are much, much more resilient to factors like warming and acidification. And, you know, this, I think, is an interesting finding because it means that there are corals that are likely to be able to survive even if we don't do enough to, to you know, take care of climate change. Not all hope is lost. I mean, we certainly still, I think, need to pay attention to climate change and do everything we can to address it as well as possible. But sometimes Mother Nature seems so fragile in some of the stories we read. And in this case... Um, you know, we see that the the uh, corals have actually adapted and will, at least for now, be able to survive the new and harsher conditions than they uh, have lived in right. previously. And I think the thing to keep in mind about this is this doesn't solve the problem. Um, and and this is not all like corals in Hawaii. It's not either. all corals <laughs> in Hawaii. Yeah, so it's definitely not all corals everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not like we can just take these and breed them and spread them around the oceans and it's solved. It, it's uh, it's actually a little concerning that it's something that we have seen because that means <laughs> it's gotten to the point where we're like, well, what's left? Yeah. But it is it is interesting to see you know whether it's nature adapting or it's it's things that are you know built to last this um it is it is heartening to see something like that well yeah. sometimes i feel like people get this idea that we should just give up like our problems are too big and it's like oh well we had a nice planet and it's wrecked and no you, we it's still worth fighting for and there's still things that are worth preserving and nature isn't you know going down without a fight yeah yeah absolutely and hey you know what else is worth preserving perhaps in a jar with spices Tomatoes? Tomato. And Elka did not see this ahead of time. I was thinking like green beans or something, but yeah. No, I I want to talk green about my next in a story. Jar with spices? Yeah. yeah, that's also a thing. It is a thing. I don't prefer that. But yeah. No, my next story is about tomatoes. Tomatoes. Yes, there is now scientific evidence showing why store bought tomatoes are very tasteless. Hmm. Yeah, they're not very good. <laughs> and that's, that's not the evidence that's not the evidence no and a lot of people i feel like might look at this story and say like well obviously they're not as good because they're mm. but it's it's now there is science behind it and it's confirmed actually the reason is that these are you know mass produced they're domesticated tomatoes they're mm. they're made for a purpose they're bred for a purpose and it turns out these tomatoes lack almost 5,000 genes that other varieties have. Hmm. Uh, like heirloom tomatoes are, are known to be some of the most flavorful tomatoes. Yes. Um, they're delicious, and I'm so, I want to go eat one right now, like an <laughs> apple. Um, oh, no. But I can't do that. Uh, so, uh, but heirloom tomatoes bruise easily. They don't have a very good shelf life. Um, and so this lack of genes, this missing 5,000 genes, isn't 
happening because of quote-unquote genetic modification. Uh, it's due to breeding, right? These tomatoes were bred choosing traits like size and shelf life and resistance to disease, very mm -hmm. important things. Um, and over time, the genes containing the better flavor were lost in the process. Mm. Um, on the other hand, you know, you have heirloom tomatoes, they taste really good, but they have a really poor shelf life and they bruise really easily and they don't they sell great. colors, right. they look a little odd. Right, so they're heartbreaking to grow i can tell you no it's hmm. they're very difficult yeah it's it's they rot easily they get too heavy and fall off the vine mm. and then oh. you get a smashed tomato so uh groundhog in my backyard eats it and you're like no at least someone's happy though yeah now i will say that the <laughs> domesticated tomato that they studied is called the heinz 1706 oh i don't know why i, oh, just I thought, thought i'd bring that up significance Oh, it's like a Pittsburgh tomato. It's yeah. I don't know that that's the connection. That's the name. So for and those of you listening around the world, Pittsburgh is home to the Heinz Corporation. Yes. We, some people would say our rivers run red with ketchup. They're wrong, but you could say that. You could. <laughs> you would be wrong, <laughs> and that would be a horrifying thing. Oh, it's so viscous. A whole it's river just, of ketchup. Ugh. Yeah, awful. Our submarine. Uh, would but not anyway, be happy. Yeah, this has yeah, this our submarine, yeah, would not mm -mm. all the acid might not do too good for it, but Ooh. And we just painted that thing. We did. Just got renovations, so Boy, what a horrific thing to think about, actually. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> now that this has been identified, right, these missing genes, uh, it's something that can hopefully be reintroduced, and maybe uh, breeders can help create, you know, better tomatoes in the future now that we know that this is why, or at least a big reason why, these uh, store-bought tomatoes don't have any taste. Maybe someday they will. I would rather eat an ugly but tasty tomato. Oh, obviously, any day. Now, Angelica, haven't you done work with tomatoes? I mean, we do have a tomato factory in our Little Learner Clubhouse here at the Science Center. Love that. Do you make tasty tomatoes or tasteless tomatoes? Um, always tasty. We like to sort our tomatoes, ripe and unripe, and of course, you know, our ripe are nice and round and juicy and red. That's a great thing. Thank you so much for the hard work <laughs> you do. <laughs> It's, you know, I can't honestly say the tomato sorting thing. I remember playing with that when I was little coming here, and that's, like, the only thing I remember from that's my the earliest. Only thing? Well, like, you know, when you're really little and you, like, don't remember anything planetarium. ever. <laughs> Shade. I like the planetarium. Just fine. No, I love it. Come on, I wouldn't still be here. Well, you're married to it. I am, and I don't. It's a good, it's a good, we so have a good time literally a full-time job it is. i mean y yes <laughs> yes in every sense yes cool so angelica yes i want to know when you, in your daily life here at the science center mm -hmm. what is your favorite thing to talk about with those early learners what's your favorite thing to present to them so with early learners we like to start with a lot of basic things since they're still young and building their knowledge. Um, so we like to talk about colors. Um, colors are fun. Colors are around I you. I love colors. Right. Colors are on you all the time. What's your favorite color? Um, my favorite color is white, which is not a color. It is. Though. I mean, it's a color. It's all but colors. Technically. I like white, but if you have to go for like a rainbow color, I choose green. Um, nice. Yeah. Too. Yeah. One. But um, with little learners, you know, colors roll into a lot of things in the world. We also like to talk about seasons. And the nice. changing of the colors of the leaves and, you know, how when it's snowy outside, everything's white. My favorite color. Um, 
Yeah, I love that. I love that. Angelica's building young minds to be curious about the world around us. And isn't that what our mission is here on Snack? You're like half Connie Chung, half Carl Sagan. I like that accent, actually. (laughs) Thank you. I don't know what it is, but it's here. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that. Thank you. This week's episode is brought to you by the Little Learner Clubhouse at the Carnegie Science Center. Do you have a little learner who is six years old or under? Bring them to our exclusive clubhouse where they can explore the sights and sounds of science through play. Let them climb and splash and pique their curiosity in the world around us and see if they can press all 200 buttons on our button wall. Once again, that's the Little Learner Clubhouse here at the Carnegie Science Center. Stop by and see us. And now, back to the show. So for today's episode, I was able to interview a really extraordinary space and science educator, Fraser Kane. Without any further ado, here's my talk with Fraser. Alright, so I'm very excited to welcome our next guest. Uh, he's a brilliant astronomy educator. Uh, I really can't even put into words all the different projects he does from podcasts to YouTube series to websites to just, he's a presence in the field of astronomy education and he's an absolute joy to talk to. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the show Fraser Kane. Fraser, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. I am delighted to talk to you today. Um, you do one of the things that I think is the most fun in the world. I, uh, so I get to talk to a lot of different science educators, but I work in a planetarium. I'm very much a little bit biased towards outer space, and nobody gets people excited about space quite like you. So for those of uh, our listeners who don't already know, uh, most of them probably do already know who you are, but for those who don't, can you just give us a little background on, on what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, So about 20 years ago, I founded a space news website called Universe Today. And I did that because uh, I didn't feel like there was a lot of really good concentrated focus space news on the internet. There was a lot of big media companies that were that were covering space news, but not, you know, in sort of all in in one place. And that started as kind of a daily newsletter that I maintained where I summarized all the stories and then over time learned to become more and more of an actual journalist and do my own reporting of my own stories. And then that branched off into me doing podcasts and videos and books and all kinds of stuff now. And so, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, 20 years now of space news journalism. That's so fantastic. And I feel like you're kind of ahead of the curve. Like today, there's a lot of online content creators that are going, but you kind of started early and, and got off, you know, got the whole internet kind of off on the right foot learning about space. Well, it's so funny. When I started Universe Today, literally, like I said, 20 years ago, uh, I thought I was too late. I thought I was behind <laughs> the uh, the curve, that that all the good domain names had been taken. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, because I had been using the internet since 1994 and even before that uh, – and had been developing websites through the next couple of years and saw all of these land grabs that were going on. And so when I founded the website in 1999, I was like, oh, it was hard to get a good domain name. And that's, that's even how Universe Today came from, was I just mixed and matched different 
spacey names and timey names together until I found one that the domain name was available. Probably <laughs> the same technique that many people still do today. Uh, and and now and then, you know, 10 years later, people are like, oh, you know, you've been going at it for 10 years. I'm like, yeah, but I still sort of always feel like like I'm behind the curve that I'm still learning and still trying to catch up with everybody. I think that's the that's what keeps me around. Yeah. And I think that you have a hunger, right? Like I can feel like you're still chasing it. Like you, you, you're not even though at this point you've been in the game and on top of it for 20 years, you're still like i i can tell when you talk about it you have this passion and you're really trying to be to like continue to to be on that cutting edge and to to do the next the next story as well as possible it's really fun yeah it's i mean i've had a couple of opportunities where i've had some side gigs because my my background is is in computer science and in product management and every now and then someone puts a, a project in front of me that i just can't turn away i worked with the x prize for a couple of years and it was so much fun, but then I'm just like, all I can think about is getting back to universe today. So once you've had a chance to to work on something else and yet still in your mind is like, when can I get back and work on universe today? When can I work on universe today? Then I know that's it. This is, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. No, that's awesome. As ever, uh, it's, a, it's such an exciting time for space uh, and universe news. I'm, I'm sure uh, you've talked, and I've actually watched, I watched a video of yours about it just a moment ago. It was awesome about the new black hole uh, yeah. photography. And uh, I was hoping if, you, if you're into it, I'd love to talk more about that because I think that's one of the coolest stories of the year for, for outer space. Yeah, and that was definitely one of our craziest weeks. And it, not only that, not only did we see the picture of the black hole, which we've been waiting on for two years, but also the Beresheet lander crashed into the moon and the Falcon Heavy launched for the second time. And in this t this case, all three boosters landed safely. So it was a very busy week. I, oh, yeah. uh, I, I wish people had spread it out a little better. That would have been <laughs> preferable. Yeah, sometimes you have like a slow week and you look back on a week like that and you're like, come on, can't we just have the Falcon Heavy launch again this week? Yeah. That one yeah, actually, I'm... that's a story that I think would have gotten bigger press if it hadn't been for the black hole. But having all three uh, boosters land is is groundbreaking. Um, and then also it was the first time it had a real live science mission, not just a – I mean the car was cool, right, the car that they <laughs> yeah. launched. But it was just – it was weight, right? It was just to make sure the rocket would, would do its thing without having a multi-million dollar satellite on top. Yeah, so in this case, they had they were launching a six thousand kilogram satellite for ArabSat. So it's a communication satellite, not so much science, just helping people get their television in in various parts of the world. But the bad news is, although yeah, the two side boosters landed safely, that middle booster landed safely. It turns out the the seas were too high for the for the the drone ship. Of course, I still love you. And there was like eight to 10 foot seas and it was steaming back. And because this core booster is actually a little bigger than the regular booster, they have this gadget called the Octo Grabber that's designed to clamp onto the booster once it's successfully landed. It wasn't able to grab onto it and the booster fell over on the drone ship and snapped off oh. uh, just above the engines. And so... 75% of this booster was fell to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and they only brought back the stump of the booster. So <laughs> we still don't have that perfect successful landing 
of the of the Falcon Heavy. So hopefully next time will be the one when everything comes goes completely according to plan. But it's such a revolutionary idea, right? This idea that when you think about the Falcon Heavy, I mean the Falcon Nine, that first booster returns safely back to to Earth and it can get reused. The upper stage is destroyed with the Falcon Heavy. You've got three boosters. 75% of this rocket is reused, plus the fairing that that holds the the satellite right. safe. So we're we're really getting close to a fully reusable rocket. Right. And for those who aren't familiar with why that's important, uh, can you can you tell us a little bit like why did why does it matter if the rocket is reusable? Well, I, I, you know, the the example that Elon Musk always likes to give is imagine if you flew to Europe and and then when you landed, they lit your your airplane on fire, your seven forty seven <laughs> on fire, right? Right. Like, like that would make that would make air travel very expensive, and space travel is very expensive to go from the surface of the Earth to go up to orbit. You're looking at even with a Falcon 9, a $60 million expense with the Falcon Heavy, it's more like $90 million. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of money to land payloads, say, on the surface of the moon. You're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars per kilogram into the into the future. So it's very expensive. Um, and if there's a way that the rocket companies can get to this place where they're able to to reuse all of the rocket in right. a way that that in the way that an airplane works that the rocket takes off the the various stages detach return to the ground land very close or even on their launch pad they're refueled they're given a new cargo and they take off again you could see a dramatic decrease in the price that things are going to cost to go to orbit and the more and you know like what do you do with a decreased cost to orbit who knows but we do know that people will figure it out mm-hmm. you get strawberries from california you get grapes from chile you get uh kiwis from uh new zealand right like like the world figures out what to do with inexpensive air freight and it will figure out what to do with inexpensive space flight we're looking at one example already where for example spacex is planning on building their starlink constellation which is going to be uh eventually i think the first run will be 2200 satellites then there will be 5000 and eventually somewhere around 12,000, which is about 10 times as many operational satellites as there are right now today, <laughs> they will be delivering high speed, like gigabit plus internet to anywhere on earth. So if you've been wanting to buy that little cabin out in the, uh, you know, away from the city, but you don't want to because you, you know, you want your high speed internet, which we all do. Yes. Wait about <laughs> three more years and you'll be able to uh, to to have as high speed, faster internet out there in the middle of the forest than you get uh, with your current uh, probably terrible broadband provider. So that's just one example of what can be done with dramatically decreased launch costs. Right. So it's going to be a total revolution leading over the next couple of years if they can actually f- crack one hundred percent usability. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's reminiscent almost of um, you know if you look at the early a few decades of the automobile, right? Like in the late 19th century, automobile, you know, Benz had invented, uh, you know, the, the horse's carriage or whatnot. And, and that was something that was working, but it was ex- accessible only to the super wealthy. And a lot of people who aren't as familiar with that 
think of the first car as the Model T, which is not, it's not the first of anything really, other than it's the first one that became affordable. And that's when we see the automobile revolution. And, you know, maybe Henry Ford probably didn't predict like interstates or truck stops and gas stations and the kind of like the fact that we I can get stuff trucked all over the country now very easily, you know, revolutionary things. And I, I think that that in many ways, this SpaceX, you know, the progression of the Falcon 9 into the Falcon Heavy and towards complete reusability is going to be, you know, decades from now, when we look back at it, this will be like when people first got cars. It's like when people finally, you know, space travel has been around for, for years, but it's it has it's only been available in the realm of extremely powerful governments with essentially unlimited funding and that's no longer going to be the case and i think that's really yep. exciting so the Did other Did you want to talk about that black hole too? Yeah, i was going to say let's uh the black hole i mean can you believe that it just it is incredible isn't it? Yeah, the i i mean it's incredible that they took this picture and they released this this i mean People people argue about whether or not it's a photograph. I say it's a photograph uh, because, like, what is a photograph? When you take a picture with your digital camera, you're just, you know, various wavelengths of light are going mm -hmm. into your into your camera's sensor, and they're being rendered by a computer onto a screen. And that's essentially what happened. But in this case, they had enormous radio observatories across the entire planet all turn their dishes simultaneously for about a week back in April 2017 on the supermassive black holes that are at the heart of both our galaxy, mm -hmm. which is located about 27,000 light years away, and the supermassive black hole at the heart of the galaxy M87, which is much farther away. It's 55 million light years away. Right. But that supermassive black hole is ridiculously bigger. While the one at the middle of the Milky Way is 4.1 million times the mass of the sun, the one at the core of M87 is 6.6 .6 billion times the mass <laughs> of the sun. It's a black hole or an event horizon larger than the solar system. It, it would go beyond the orbit of Pluto. And that's, oh. just, that's just event horizon, not, not to mention everything that's surrounding it. So all of these telescopes all observed at the same time and ha had atomic clocks to make sure that they were recording the, the, at the exact same moments. And then they took all this data, and some of it was pretty extreme, right? They had to, they had to fly out the data from the South Pole uh, telescope waiting for the South Pole summer that they could actually get these these yeah. hard drives and hard drives out. And then they had to use these computers to align all of the data down to the individual wavefront. So each the wavelength of that light is 1.2 millimeters. And so they had to go and and align it perfectly to the specific wavefront so that then all of these telescopes would together act like a single telescope the size of the planet. Get the timing wrong, and you don't get that benefit. It's only when you have them perfectly right. lined up that you get that you get that timing, you get that that resolution, which is what you're looking for. And a black hole, although this one is really big, it's really far, and so it's a very small object. People said it was about the size of an orange on the moon. So you think about the resolution of what it is that you're. And so it's so, so funny, right? People are like, "Oh, it's a little blurry." Well, yeah, you know, yeah. you know how things that are really far away and they're really small look a little blurry in your eyes. Yeah. Same thing. So, and so what they saw was pretty much exactly what 
the calculations that Einstein had developed for general relativity would expect that they would see. They saw the accretion disk, this swirling disk of material that is going around the, the black hole, sort of the stuff that's waiting to die. But even better than that, they could see the way it was distorted aligning up with the way that that relativity had predicted that you would see you would see stuff behind the black hole wrapped around to the front of the black hole and i think the classic image that everybody's seen is this idea from the, the movie interstellar right that is that is what you're seeing you're seeing no matter how you look at the black hole you're seeing the distortion of space and time all around it and so this was the the black hole at the at the core of of m87 we're still waiting on the image that's going to be coming from the the heart of the milky way at some point i hope and then we'll go through this all again yeah which i mean even though it's much smaller sagittarius a star the the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy i mean that's essentially that's that's right in the middle everything in the galaxy is orbiting around that area right that's right in the core um and and that's a pretty big deal i mean it's amazing to think that every star you see in the sky is all in orbit essentially around the core which is the heart of that core of the galaxy is this one black hole and yeah and it's a like it's a vortex it's a maelstrom of death but it's ours it's our right? our little maelstrom of death as opposed to yeah. the behemoth it is amazing to think yeah. you know when when i hear astronomy educators and and scientists talk about you know the difference in scale here between a four million solar mass black hole and a six and a half billion solar mass black hole. If M eighty seven's black hole swallowed Sagittarius A star, it might not really even notice, right? Like that's like yeah. nothing. That'd be like if I was riding my bike and I accidentally Burp. swallowed a fly. You know, like I might notice, uh, but it wouldn't like knock me off my bike or anything. Uh, it's yeah. it is stunning how massive that is. Six and a half billion solar, and it's not. A solar mass is nothing to sneeze at, you know, as a, a, no, a human no, that's, that, that's, that's huge. the mass of our sun. You're orbiting it right now. <laughs> yeah. It's what is it? They say that 99.8% the mass of the solar system is in the sun. So, yeah. a, so that's a big thing, right? The earth is nothing compared to the mass of the sun. And uh, we're talking many, many orders of magnitude. And yet this object is so compact that it, it, it took an earth sized telescope to image it it's just the the level of extremes that go into making this this picture it's mind-blowing um and uh, what an exciting time to be in astronomy do you ever feel like excited that you get to do astronomy education now as opposed to a hundred years ago or other even earlier oh yeah um and in fact the best is yet to come i i have this talk that i give uh, which is that welcome to the golden age of astronomy. And the reality is, is that this Event Horizon Telescope is, is one example of you're seeing all of these techniques, right? The, the Event Horizon Telescope used this idea of interferometry, of, of merging multiple telescopes together. There's this other technique uh, called adaptive optics where they're able to remove the distortions of the Earth's atmosphere. So it's as if your telescope, your gigantic telescope is out in space mm -hmm. and they're able to um, use what are called coronagraphs to be able to block the light from a star to see fainter objects around it. And a lot of this stuff is going to come together. In just about two years, we're going to see this first amazing next level telescope called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. Mm -hmm. 
it's going to be imaging the entire night sky every couple of nights at a very high level of depth. It's going to produce its own version of like the Hubble deep field, but nonstop, night after night after night. Oh. And so it's going to see anything that's changing. It's going to see every supernova. It's going to see asteroids zipping around, new comets showing up in the solar system. It's going to see novas and variable stars. And really, it's going to turn up a whole bunch of stuff that astronomers were never expecting. Because it's like, now we realize the universe is doing things that we never planned shortly after that by 2024 comes the um the giant magellan telescope which is going to be capable of for example imaging earth-sized planets orbiting sun-like stars directly from the ground oh right? man that's and unbelievable that's the, and that's the little telescope then comes the extremely large telescope which is a 39 meter telescope that takes all this to the next level <sighs> Yeah, it's mind-bending what's coming. Not to mention, in 2021 or maybe the year 3000, uh, the James <laughs> Webb Space Telescope is going to launch. Was... And then after that, you're going to see W first. Yeah. Uh, right? And then after that, you're going to see potentially um, the Louvoir Telescope, which is going to be an 18, a 15 to an 18-meter telescope, but it's going to be in space. That's just Stunning. It's so, that, yeah, that is ridiculous. Yeah, no, I yeah. agree. I agree com completely. This is the golden age and really the beginning of the golden age of astronomy. Oh, it's so exciting. Yeah, so just and, you wait. Like, you think this was fun? It's about to get more fun. Yeah, no, I feel like we're at just, it, it's like, um, like we just, like Galileo just started using this telescope today and we have so much left to find out. It's just like all over again, this really exciting time. And uh, one of the things that I think is really exciting is that there's so many more ways to get involved than there used to be. There's so many telescopes, there's citizen science available. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Juno, um, which is NASA's Jupiter orbiter. And they actually, they have citizen science programs going on, helping to like pick what Juno does next, which is... Just... It's more than that. I mean, it wouldn't, Juno wouldn't have had a camera. Like it would have all the scientific instruments, but it wouldn't have had a camera to take pretty pictures of Jupiter. And people advocated to put on a, a, a fairly small camera system, four colors, so it has the regular colors plus an infrared, and to make this the, the images and the targets, as you say, available to citizen scientists. And now those beautiful swirling images of Jupiter that we've gotten really familiar with are are coming from these, these great collaborations between amateurs and the scientists. Mm -hmm. No, it's what an exciting time to be uh, alive on Earth and being interconnected in a way that hasn't happened before. Also, I was listening to an audiobook recently that went over uh, the discovery of the cosmic microwave background. And for those who aren't familiar, right, that's the uh, I'm, I'm, you could probably tell me all about it. But it's, the, you know, it's this sort of like um, light left over from when the universe first became transparent very shortly after the Big Bang. And the, the people who discovered it weren't looking for it, right? They were, they were using a radio telescope for something else, and they just couldn't find the source of this background noise that they were hearing. Meanwhile, only 30 miles away, people were looking for the CMB and, and didn't know that it had already been discovered just blocks away. And, you know, and it took, I think it took years for that connection to be made. And today that yeah. connection, I mean, that I, I would, you would just Google like what's going on with this and it, we'd all be connected overnight. And it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. 
Yeah, when you think about the, uh, like, there was that thing, the Killanova two years ago, where two neutron stars collided, and they detected the gravitational waves of the collision. And at the exact same time, they detected the, uh, the flash of light in the sky, mm-hmm. and they were able to connect the two together. When they, they worked on the research paper, when they finally released it, it was, I think, the largest collaboration am- among astronomers. It had thousands of astronomers' names on the paper because not only was there the Gravitational Wave Observatory, but then you had dozens of other observatories that turned to focus both on Earth and in space, and they all, within hours, had had located the, the location of the explosion and and we're able to gather all of this data. And it's a level of coordination that you that wasn't possible back in back in the day. I mean, I feel like it wasn't even possible when I was a kid just getting into astronomy, not on the level it is today, which which brings me to a question that I have for you, which is, how did you get into this? Like, what, what were you always a space like when you were a little kid growing up? Were you interested in in outer space and, and cosmology and astronomy? Or how did this get started for you? Yeah, I was I was always interested. I think I I give it to my parents for getting me excited about it. Um, we lived in a on a place in Canada with very dark skies. I was able to see the night sky, the Milky Way. Uh, got to know the night sky with my with my parents. We would go and watch meteor showers and see the constellations in the summertime and the wintertime and know where the planets were and watch the moon and things like that. Mm-hmm. My dad was had been there for the Apollo landings, and so. He helped, he kind of relived it with me in 1970, uh, man, 1981 with the first launch of the space shuttle. He got me up early to go watch the first space shuttle launch. So I think my parents were were definitely very enthusiastic. And then as I was, I had books about space and astronomy as a kid. And when I was 14, I bought my first telescope. Which was, uh, I you know would go out every night and see the planet. Not a great, it was like a four inch telescope. It was pretty terrible, but it was enough <laughs> to be able to see the rings of Saturn and see yeah. the, the 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 moons of Jupiter and and some of the brighter uh, celestial objects. And then when I was in high school, I I took the journalism program. And I actually, it's hilarious. I reported on what you could see in the night sky at this time of the year, what, you know, how to find your way around Orion and how to learn your constellations and stuff like that. And then I went to engineering at UBC and then I went into software development and totally abandoned it for (laughs) about 10 years. I was, I was into space, but I wasn't that into it. And, and then, as I mentioned, I was, I was looking to reconnect because it had been this thing that had I'd always been really fascinated by. I really loved it, and and yet I had somehow lost connection with it. And so I decided I was going to get into it. I bought two books. I bought Pale Blue Dot by Carl Sagan. Classic. And I bought The Case for Mars by Robert Zubrin and read those two books and got re-enthusiastic about them and resolved, well, I'm going to somehow get involved. I don't know how, but I'm going to figure it out. And until I figure it out, I'm just going to start a website and maintain it, and I'll figure it out later. <laughs> and <laughs> about a, maybe about a year into this, and so I've been maintaining it, sending out my newsletter every night, uh, I got to a point where I'm like, okay, this is all I want to do. Like, I'm having so much fun. The connections are coming fast. I'm getting a chance to actually connect with other astronomers. People are enjoying what I'm doing. 
it's really a lot of fun. And then it was just a matter a countdown until I could figure out how to be able to do it full time. So, yeah. so if, you know, if the stuff that people were into and now they're working in a cubicle, working in a desk job, there's lots of ways to get back to what you loved when you were younger. And I, and it's definitely a lot more fun to have a job that you, you enjoy what you work with. Absolutely. Right? Well, and I think, you know, so we both do science education off in my in my arena where at the science center where we have a lot of families but i love that you're able to connect you know you don't have to be a little kid to get into space you can be in your 30s or 40s or even your 50s or older and maybe working a job that you don't love and like that it's never too late to get back into it yeah and it's easier than ever to get into it and there are um there are so many resources i love that like nasa data like what you're talking about with the juno cam is available to anybody you can you can get that and then there are all sorts of astronomy programs out there local astronomy clubs there's no one in the world who wants you to look through their telescope more than an astronomy nut yeah. right like you go to a star party and they will show you telescopes until you are tired of looking at telescopes yeah uh, yeah exactly and so, and I think that's really cool that that your story includes this bit where you took a took a turn into a more traditional path of of working in computer science, and and I you know, and that's also a really fascinating field. But I love that you were able to, you know, from and from like people like Carl Sagan. I mean, he was a major influence on me getting into astronomy when I was younger as well, and and that just rubbed off in like the cascade. I wonder how many people read pale blue dot or watched the cosmos series or whatever it was got influenced by sagan and that now do that and and i feel yeah. like you get to be that now and there are probably people who have watched your videos or been to your website who are getting that same assist into uh into getting into astronomy from you which has got to be pretty rewarding to see oh yeah Th those are the best emails uh that you get those are the ones that you just treasure is when a person tells you that because of the the stuff that you've been creating they went back to school or they focused on astronomy and and now they've got a job at spacex or now yeah. they're a research astronomer or they've just written their first book or they bought a new telescope or whatever it is oh yeah um it's yes. an incredibly rewarding experience to know that you're influencing that next generation of of people into into this field and speaking of the field, let's get back to it because I can. I want to talk about space for it. I'm so excited about it, and talking with someone uh, with your background on it is just—it's a special opportunity. What are some space? So you know, the Falcon Heavy, uh, SpaceX in general, uh, the black hole, things like this have been big news stories. I think a lot of people have heard of. What are some uh, some stories that are sort of flying under the radar that you think more people should know about? Is there anything that's like really exciting to you? that maybe isn't on the front page of Reddit today, you know? Yeah, well, the the thing, like I sort of special specialize in what's around the corner. Um, I've realized that's the kind of content that I'm most interested in. You know, a lot of other people look at really speculative stuff. What, Where are we going to be in a thousand years or 10,000 years? I am really excited about what, what happens in the next... 10 years, five years. Uh, and so there's a couple of things that I think are really exciting. One is this idea of space manufacturing. There's this company called Made in Space, and they've actually got a 3D printer that's on board the International Space Station and produces a bunch of like little wrenches and and little gugas and and stuff like that. But it is demonstrating that it is possible to 
to take raw materials up into space and then create things as required. You need a wrench. You need to pick, fix a part. You need to, um, you know, you need to make this uh, vent go into that duct. They right, can which, help you build that thing, right? Uh, it's like, which imagine, is reminiscent of that Apollo 13 moment. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got to fix it. This is what they've got. And so you can imagine, I mean, and this is just at the very, very beginning, but you can imagine this future where they are extracting resources from asteroids and other places mm -hmm. in space. They are collecting them together into these space-based manufacturing facilities and then they're turning out things uh the next thing that made in space is working on is this thing called the arcanaut which is this three-armed sort of spider spacecraft that has uh, on board it has pots of building material and then it extrudes girders in space out of its like spinneret like a spider and so it's got these three arms and it's just sort of pulling these girders out of itself and then once it's pulled the thing out then it manufactures a couple of of rivets and bolts and then bolts the whole thing together and then goes and builds more of it and so for example when you look at what's happening with the james webb space telescope they're having to it's gotten enormously delayed because it's this incredibly huge very complicated telescope that's very sensitive but it also has to fit inside a regular rocket it has to handle the the pressures of launching what if you didn't have to do that what if you you could just yeah. build your whole space telescope in space from stuff you found in space so um that is sort of the the direction and so made in space is one of the companies that's ahead of it but there was a, a bunch of others that are working on various aspects aspects of this like mining and extracting you know power generation and things like that and i actually think the the rocket revolution that we're going in right now is is one step the next step is the space-based manufacturing revolution that will right. hilariously make the ro the need for rockets go away so we're going to get mm -hmm. to this time where we won't need rockets anymore because everything that we want we just get from space the only mm -hmm. purpose for rockets will be to take people up to the space stuff and yeah. so in fact we'll get to this time where we don't launch rockets anymore because it's all up there already and so that is something that i'm watching they're they're learning to build material out of lunar regolith to build houses and structures learning to center various objects and metals and stuff together in space that that across every area like growing crystals in space and and mm -hmm. things like that so i think we're the exploitation or the utilization of space is going to look a lot different just a few decades from now once that really starts to take off. So I'd say that's something well, that I'm that I'm really excited about that I think is going under the radar. So one of the things that I think is exciting about space manufacture is the idea that uh, of doing it on the moon. In particular, uh, if you're able to build a rocket on the moon, that is a much easier way to then, especially if you're able to fuel it on the moon, right? That's a much easier yeah. way to, to jump around the solar system because the moon is a much more shallow gravity well. Uh, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Do you think we'll see people launching to Mars from the moon at some point? Or Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think that the jury for me is still out on, on whether or not we're going to want to go to the moon and to Mars. And I know that's sort of what everybody thinks. And, I, and mm -hmm. like I said, the case for Mars was was the book that got me really inspired in the yeah. first place. But, 
But I also really feel like like gravity wells. I always say that gravity wells are for suckers. So once you've gotten <laughs> out of a gravity well, uh, why would you go back into a gravity well? And Mars is just another. It's another gravity well, and the Moon is another gravity well. So so if you're looking to refuel, there are huge comets and asteroids and and reservoirs of of ice across the solar system that you could bring and put into various orbits and utilize them. There are some deposits on the Moon that I think will help us take some first steps. But I would actually be surprised if there was any large permanent habitation of Mars. I mean, I think we'll send some people and they're going to want to look around and look for evidence of past life. But but Mars is going to be a really hard place to live. Yeah, that and weirdly, right, like, like it only produces 38% of the gravity that we need here on Earth it is exposed to deadly space radiation. Uh, there's a bunch of reasons why it's a, actually a pretty terrible place to live. The soil, the regolith is filled with toxic perchlorates. The only atmosphere is this incredibly thin carbon dioxide. Like, right. It's just a terrible place to live. While you could go to space itself, you could set up some kind of rotating space station and, just live and there. you could have perfect yeah. gravity. You could have exact. You could have exactly the gravity. Surround yourself in radiation shielding, and you're protected from the radiation. Uh, so I think that that there are going to be people are going to test out all of these ideas. They're going to go to the moon. They're going to try extract resources. They're going to try building space stations. They're going to try going to Mars. And a hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, we will know what turned out to be the right plan and what was a terrible idea <laughs> yeah well no doubt some terrible ideas will happen people are good at, at, at yeah. terrible ideas for sure um yeah yeah and i actually i think you did a video not too long ago about why mars is also if mars isn't just tough to live on it's tough to land on yeah it's tough to get to right yeah. and then it's, it's not just because it's far away right it's the the atmosphere you're describing makes it really challenging to land anything of any significance on mars yeah, the problem with the with the atmosphere on Mars is that it's one percent the thickness of of the Earth, and so with the Moon with no atmosphere, you don't need any kind of atmospheric shielding. You just go into orbit around the Moon, and then you fire your thrusters, and you use, and then you you descend through the closer and closer to the planet. You slow your sideways velocity, and then you land. And all it is, you know, there's no atmosphere to rub up against. You don't need to protect your spacecraft in any way. Right. You're not you just going to burn enough... up on entry. Yeah. Yeah. You just need enough propellant to make sure that you can do your landing safely. But with Mars, because it has that 1% thickness mm -hmm. of atmosphere, you do need to carry heat shields and parachutes and and all kinds of things to try and slow your descent. But it's not thick enough that you can rely on that only. Like on Earth or in Venus or on Titan, you can just enter the atmosphere, slow yourself down. As long as you don't get too hot, you'll get to a nice slow speed. You'll you'll turn you'll be going twenty eight thousand kilometers an hour and then you'll land nicely at mm -hmm. a hundred and fifty, two hundred kilometers an hour, and you have bled all of that velocity directly into the atmosphere you got this free ride down to the surface but with mars it's not thick enough to let you do that so yeah. you still have to use some kind of propellant to slow yourself down and, and land and so right now the heaviest object that's ever been landed on the surface of mars is only one ton it was curiosity yeah they're going to do it again with the 2020 rover uh so one ton while spacex is saying they're going to drop they're going to land 100 tons onto the surface 
of Mars. And it, the, all of the techniques that are used to land Curiosity, the parachutes, the heat shield, the sky crane, all of these ideas, they don't go beyond one ton. You just you can't build a parachute strong enough to handle when it deploys with a heavy tons, weight yeah. on the end of it, it's just going to snap. So they're going to need something different. And so those spacecraft, when they go heavier, they're going to need some combination of a really powerful, really strong, heavy heat shield. And then they're also going to need to use propulsion. So it's it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be very complicated. And I think it's going to take a lot of tries until someone figures out a technique that that does everything that they need to get those payloads down to the surface. Yeah, one of the things that I've heard when people have talked about it is the idea of using Phobos um, as sort of like an intermediate, a spot to stop. And you can lose your sort of interplanetary velocity. Yeah. Just get, get to Phobos orbit velocity, right? Which is much slower. Um, and Phobos orbits pretty close to Mars. So that would that would help. But what, what do you think about that? Does that seem like a waste of time to you? Does, well, I mean, if you don't like the whole point of of going to Mars or one of the real priorities is to get there as fast as you can and get down onto the surface. Every day that you spend in interplanetary travel, you are exposed to the full radiation load of the mm -hmm. universe. And so you've not only got the particles that are streaming from the sun, the solar wind, but you've got the galactic cosmic radiation, which is really deadly and, and will give anyone over a, a long enough exposure, a really high uh, chance of cancer. So you right. want to minimize the, the every day that you spend in that deep space is one day too many. And so a lot of those ideas, yeah, no, you could definitely make your landing a lot easier, but then you you go into orbit around Mars. You're, you've got to slow down your, your orbit. Then you've got to land at the Phobo station, and then you've got to move to your landing craft. And that's just adding days and days and days of time that you are exposed to that radiation so the 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 while a direct route you fly straight to mars you go into the atmosphere land on the surface hide in your lava tube and call it a day and that's yeah. i think what <laughs> is that's what people want to to minimize that the damage of the radiation so all those other other ideas would help but they're still you know they still get away from this central problem which is that it's right. just really tough to get down to mars Right, kind of makes you appreciate Earth a little more, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Like, people are always saying, like, oh, you know, the rich are going to leave Earth and go to Mars. There's no way, right? Earth is the best. Earth is, <laughs> uh, you know, I'll take a stand right now and say that that Earth is the best planet in the entire universe. Yeah, for right? us. Yeah. That we evolved into this environment, this perfect amount of atmosphere, mm -hmm. the the plants around us, the day-night cycle, the gravity. We we fit this planet perfectly, and we will never find another place that's mm -mm. anywhere as good as what we've got here. And so you can go to Mars sort of in the same way that if you want, you can go and live in the desert, or if you want, you can go and live in the in the dry valleys in Antarctica because you want a challenge because you, you you like to, I don't know, eat rocks. I don't know what, what you do, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, you know, like you want to carve some kind of living sure. in, a, in a really hostile environment. If that's your thing, man, then, then go ahead. But I want to surf and I want to 
I want to go for you know swim in the ocean and I want to see birds and I want to see trees and I want to do all the kinds of stuff that you can only do on earth. So, mm-hmm. uh yeah, I'm not that worried about about people looking to evacuate planet earth and that and I hope that that we will be able to use space as a way to take our pollution off of the earth. Like let's let's put our heavy industry all that manufacturing out in space where it's not going to matter and right and it's not going to impact the earth so earth can get back to doing the thing that it does best which is being awesome for life right and i think that's such a great moment to end on you know as awesome as space is and it is so awesome and it's so exciting to learn about it the earth is the best and and before i let you go i want to give you one more moment can you tell us for those who who love hearing you talk about space and want to learn more how can people connect to you Sure. So, of course, my website is Universe Today, uh, and so we're publishing space news every day there on Universe Today. Uh, I also do – I personally write sort of a weekly roundup newsletter that covers a lot of the big space stories that I'm seeing, not only on our website but across, and that goes out by email. So I think if people want a way to to dip their toes, I highly recommend that. Just go to universetoday.com slash newsletter. It's written by me, no ads, and just space. Uh, And then, of course, I'm the co-host of Astronomy Cast with uh, my good friend Dr. Pamela Gay, and we've been doing that for 11 years and cover a different topic in space and, and astronomy every week. Uh, And then, of course, I do my YouTube series uh, every several times a a week where I cover different, like you mentioned, we cover a topic about landing payloads on Mars. Uh, I do interviews with astronomers and astronauts and space scientists and things like that. So lots of content to to get into if this is what you're into. Awesome. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today to talk to us and uh, keep doing what you're doing because I absolutely love learning about space with you. All right. Thanks a lot, Ralph. Huge thanks again to Fraser Kane. Had a lot of fun talking with him. If you haven't already checked out his stuff, I don't know what you're doing with your life, but you should go do that now. This next question comes in email from Liza, who asks, what would it smell like on Venus? Am I answering that? It would smell like farts. <laughs> <laughs> Very hot farts. That's horrible. Sense. I don't want to talk about that. Liza, Venus is a place you never want to smell. No, it's uh, got a lot of sulfuric acid in that atmosphere. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever smelled sulfur before, uh, but it is a lot like rotten egg. And it is also 900 degrees, so it would smell like burning. And also, it would smell like. The pressure of Venus's dense atmosphere crushing you. So. Right. It's like being half a mile under the sea. But that's not the question that was asked. The question was, what would it smell like? And it would smell like rotten eggs. Yeah. For a very short time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Now, if you've got science questions, you can send them in to us at snack at carnegiesciencecenter.org. That's S-N-A-Q at carnegiesciencecenter.org. Or you can just call in and record one at 412-237-3327. Join us next time here on Snack. And remember, stay Stay hungry hungry for for science. science.